This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. Welcome to Connected to Chicago. It was a week of turmoil within the Chicago public schools after the teachers' union refused to return to the classroom and held a vote to revert back to remote learning. The move is not only impacting kids, but parents as well. Joining us today is Nancy Griffin, founder of the Chicago Parents Collective. Thanks for being on the program today, Nancy. Thanks so much for having me. For those who don't know, although your group has been in the news, uh, briefly tell us what is the Chicago Parents Collective? So we are an independent group of parents uh, with Chicago public school parents. Um, And really, it's a grassroots group we created less than a year ago uh, to really just bring parents together on issues relating to the Chicago public schools. What we have what we found we're newer to the system. um, What we found is that there's the organization of CPS and the mayor and there's the teachers union that is a collective union for 25,000 teachers. And there is not a single body of or group of parents across the system of over 300,000 kids um, to work together for things in the best interest of our children. Well, so let's start there then. I find it odd that parents really don't have any local say over what happens within their schools. I thought there were some like LSCs and things like that. Is there really not that much weight associated with that? So I think that's very specific. There's very specific roles for those types of groups. Um, LSCs uh, provide information and, and do some kind of rules and mandating. I'm not on an LSC. I'm not as familiar with exactly what their roles and responsibilities are, but they work with the principal and make sure things are happening um, kind of more operationally and financially within the schools. The PTA is more for organizational activities within the schools, and friends of organizations are usually more of a fundraising unit for the schools. So I think what we found in the biggest challenge is we know very intimately what is happening with our individual school. And you know the parents and you know the people and you know what's happening at your neighborhood school or your magnet school or wherever you're at a school. But there is nothing that talks for parents across the schools. So you don't know what's happening across the city or across the schools. Um, which is a, is a big myth because then parents aren't informed in, or are living in their own bubbles of what's happening in their, in their school but don't know what's happening across the board for CPS. Well, and I guess eventually when we get into these elected school board positions, that would give parents more weight to weigh in, wouldn't you think? Um, I mean, I think that is the hope. Uh, the challenge is right now, and not to get too political too fast, But the challenge right now is there's very little criteria around those positions in the elected school board. Um, So there's actually no requirement that there is parent representation included. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's get to the what's happening nowadays with the CTU, (laughs) Um, the teachers union. And what what are their demands? Because I'm hearing from all different places that overall the schools are safe. So what's the beef? Uh, so I, I'm hearing the same thing as you. Um, Dr. Arwady has participated in the press conferences alongside the CPS CEO, Pedro Martinez, and the mayor saying that schools are safe. She has data behind the fact that schools are not, this is not spreading in schools. 
the rates in schools are lower than they are in the community in many cases, and if not lower, then they are on par with what's happening in the community. Schools are not a super spreader like they may have initially been thought. So that's, frankly, that's a lot of parents' concern that the data and the science is showing this is not any different in schools than it is somewhere else. Um, unfortunately, that is not the teachers union's opinion. And though they don't have data to support it, they are contending that the schools aren't safe. And I know that, uh, I, I, I guess, in regards to the, the safety issues that they have, um, most of them have been met. I guess they, there's some concern about a lack of um, uh, testing out there, but then I'm hearing, too, that the city is ramping up testing. Um, so you would think that it, it would meet uh, the demands that the CTU is, is looking at. Now, Dr. Arwadi kind of, she mentioned this this past week. She did this thing where she said there had been a comparison um, where the private schools, Catholic schools, for instance, stayed open. They really didn't close at all, and public schools did close. But during that time period, the numbers kind of were about the same, right? There there wasn't any difference in, in the number of uh, students uh, getting sick in the classroom in those Catholic schools or getting sick learning remotely. Yep, that's that's the data that we're following as well. So what is the biggest impact on parents? Obviously, in my mind, you know, I have a job, you have a job, you have to go to work. Uh-oh, I've got no place to put the kids because they should be in, in, in school. Is that kind of what you're hearing? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that is the, um, the CEO of CPS recently said that over 70% of parents with pu- Chicago Public School students are full-time working parents. 70% of the parents of 300,000 kids did not know that their school would be closed until 11.30 p.m. on Tuesday night and are literally going day by day to know if the next day their schools are going to be open. And mind you, the science is saying that it is safe to be open. So that the increased frustration is not only the last minuteness of this, but understanding why they're closed in the first place. Yeah, you had said something. You were on the Bruce St. James show, and you were like, well, they've got the metrics for, you know, closing the schools, but where are the metrics for opening up the schools and making sure, you know, that if this happens again, you know, these schools don't shut down. Has that question been answered yet? I don't think that question has been answered no. anywhere. Do you, do you expect <laughs> it to be answered? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I hope, my hope is that we can start having conversations just in general, everyone, about what are those metrics when we start opening more things up and doing more things. And again, I was recently talking to someone else about masking and everyone has a different opinion on masking and I'm not trying to have a masking debate, but when is it gonna be safe to take the masks off? Nobody has said that. So at this point, as a public school parent who they want to go back to safety measures that were in place a year ago before vaccines were available on the regular, as well as available to the students in the school. They want to go back to safety measures there. Why are we going backwards? How do we start moving forward and figure out how we're going to move out of this instead of staying back where we were a year ago? And you have a majority of uh, teachers that are vaccinated, right? And I imagine there's a big majority of uh, the students, you know, five plus that are vaccinated. So overall, you'd think if you follow the science, it's a pretty safe environment to be in a school. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's another frustrating part, which is that last year in, we were, we being public, Chicago public schools, were scheduled to open in February and the teachers union fought with CPS and the mayor over vaccinations. They wanted all teachers to have availability to access to vaccinations uh, before going back. So our reopening was delayed by six weeks. Kids were still remote for an additional six weeks because they wanted to be vaccinated, which then bumped them to the top of the list. So they were put ahead of other essential workers to ensure they had the opportunity to be vaccinated. So we've already delayed it to get them vaccinated. 91% of teachers of CPS staff are vaccinated. So, and now kids can be vaccinated. So again, I agree with you. What, what, what's the, the challenges? And then the science says it's safe. So I guess that's where parents are struggling to understand what is the problem. Well, and this goes back to now, we'll bring politics back into it. Uh, it, it seems like if that was their main demand back then, and that's been met, right? So here we are now. They've got these other sets of demands, but some of the demands, it seems like they're trying to solve all the city's problems rather than focus on their main responsibility. They're talking about social inequities and the city should address things on the south and the west sides. And I, I understand where they're coming from, but the main responsibility is to get clad kids in the classroom, get the teachers in the classroom and teach the kids. Yes, I think that is that is the hope that we can get back to focusing on the main purpose of what the school system is there for, which is to educate and teach our youth. They are our future. They are the, the people that are going to be figuring out the next vaccines. They are the ones that are going to be saving the world. We need to put them in the best place so that they can do that. We, we can't save the world through, edu- through education without educating our children. And there's this other thinking, too. Uh, this maybe should be done on a school-by-school basis. Would that be better? Uh, say, you know, you have one school over here that has uh, all of a sudden an outbreak of COVID. You handle it there rather than shutting the whole district down. Has there been a lot of talk about that? So that is what um, it sounds like CPS and the mayor are proposing, which is on a school-by-school basis. I think that there is a lot of logic to that, which is if they shut down the whole system of over 600 schools and over 300,000 kids, then they're throwing everything up in the air and everybody has to scramble and figure it out. If there are a handful of schools that are having a major outbreak or having staffing issues, if they can hone in on those specific schools, then they can focus their energy there, focus their resources there, and it doesn't disrupt the lives of all of the other 300,000 kids in the other 500 plus schools that are not having those significant outbreaks or staffing issues. Now, talking about the kids, there's got to be a big impact on them. Uh, I know that uh, I think even Dr. Fauci has talked about it, that, you know, there there is a an impact on them when it comes to remote learning. You have kids. What are your concerns? Uh, significant concerns. Um, again, as, as one of the biggest discussion points in our group right now is, first of all, right now, uh, CPS has not approved remote learning. It is not approved um, through the Illinois State Board of Education. And those days, even if we were to do remote learning, would not count towards the required days because there is an in-person requirement coming out of the state of Illinois. And the only way to get around that is to get an approval from CPS. CPS has not approved that. 
So the first thing is, I don't, I think remote learning isn't the same as in-person learning. It's not even approved by the district or the mayor to be remote learning, which is where, who makes the decisions? How do parents have a say in that? Parents vote for the mayor. The mayor then assigns a CEO. Those are the people we, that's how we impact, we vote. And those are the people making those decisions. And in this case, the teachers union has said, no, we need to be remote. CPS has said, no, you need to be in person. And they said, no, we need to be remote and went remote. Is there an emotional impact on kids? I, you know, if this is a time in their lives when they're making these these bonds with other kids. They're learning social skills, right? But, I mean, do they miss their friends? Like, they're not seeing them if they're out of class. Yeah, I think, I mean, in general, one of the biggest topics that parents are talking about right now within our group, we have over 1,400 parents across the city of Chicago, is if it were to be approved by CPS, if they would do remote learning. And a lot of the parents of younger children are saying, even if it's approved, they will not subject their kids to remote learning. It was such a terrible experience last year. And there was so much emotional impact to kids. And some kids really, it increased anxiety, it increased depression. It was just a really terrible experience that there are a lot of parents out there saying, even if it does get approved, I'm not going to do it. The exception is, is some of the older kids, because as we all know, as you get older, higher in grades or higher grade levels, grades matter a lot more. And kids that are in seventh grade trying to get into selective enrollment high schools or kids that are in high school trying to get into colleges, whether they agree with remote learning or not, they can't not be in class if it's approved as, as, a, as a day of class. So I think there are some parents that are torn to say, well, what can we do? Because we can't not remote learn because we don't want it to impact our kids even more than all of this is already impacting our kids. So I think that the remote learning was an experiment that happened last year because we were in a pandemic. And I think there are a lot of parents that are not willing to go back. Have you heard, I, I heard a report this morning that there are some schools that may still be open and I'm not just talking about for kids to have a place to go, but in, in some neighborhoods, some schools are still open. Are you hearing anything like that? Have you heard that? So, yes. And so that gets back to it's so it's a mess. It's it's absolute chaos. Um, as CEO Martinez mentioned in his press conference two days ago, schools are open. They are welcoming teachers back. So if teachers are willing to come back in the, in the classrooms, uh, Principals can welcome students back in an academic capacity if they have the staffing to support it. So on a case-by-case basis, um, principals can make the decision to reach out to parents. And so I haven't yet heard of an entire school that has opened, but we've heard of classes that are open, um, again, for academics, not just enrichment. I will say the principals are doing an amazing job in really trying to help families and help kids and get them back in the schools, even if it is not for academics. So for enrichment, because again, parents are scrambling and need help with their kids because like I said, over 70% are full-time working parents. So there, but I will say one positive story. Um, We have heard that there is a school um, 
in some more of the uh, kind of area where there are a lot of police and firemen, and those teachers are back at 96%, and that school is on target to reopen in full on Monday. Oh, wow. Okay. So you kind of do have some some local support. Uh, I guess teachers in, you know, that certain neighborhood would say, hey, it's important that, uh, you know, we keep the school open for the kids and for the community. Uh, Nancy, if folks want to learn more about you guys and what you do um, at the Chicago Parents Collective, how can they get more information? So we have a Facebook page, um, the Chicago Parents Collective. Uh, we also have an email address, Chicago Parents collective at gmail.com. Um, feel free to reach out. Again, we're an independent grassroots parent group, really just trying to share and gather and work together as parents across Chicago um, to better um, make a better learning education environment for our kids. And that is Nancy Griffin with the Chicago Parents Collective. My thanks for being on the program today, Nancy. Thanks so much. Up next, the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable, where we welcome in Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Greg Hines with Crane Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Well, folks, Congressman Bobby Rush has announced he uh, will not be seeking re-election after serving 15 terms. Lynn, if you can start the group off, that's a long time in Congress. What is he going to be remembered for? What's his legacy? His legacy will be as a civil rights leader in the United States Congress in his legislation. He would focus so often on uh, racial equity aspects, hiring equity aspects. Uh, He hopes to get over the line before his term ends next year. The Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, it's passed the House, has been stalled in the Senate. Uh, He has one of the most iconic moments in what will be his 30 years in Congress is when he went to the House floor wearing a hoodie in order to protest uh, the brutal the the shooting at the Trayvon Martin, where he said, just because you're wearing a hoodie does not make you a hoodlum. He also, one other thing, he also, for all his congressional work, never really left the nitty-gritty of Chicago politics behind, uh, always ready to get into local, uh, stirring up the pot in local political issues with his endorsements or protests or back behind the scenes uh, political machinations. Yeah, he's part of the fabric of Chicago for for decades. And of course, he started out uh, hitting the public's conscious back when he was a member of the Black Panther Party. And he was not in the building, obviously, that that uh, was uh, uh, ambushed by police and uh, where Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were were killed. And um, he rose up uh, to take a leader, a higher leadership role in that party. And then he ran for city council where I covered him uh, back in the early 90s. And um, he was always a voice of conscience there, too, where he uh, also ran against um 
uh, Mayor Daley once he once he uh, had gone. I believe he was in Congress at the time he ran against Daley. But he yeah, um, yeah when he uh, when he ran for Congress, um, I remember the billboards uh, that said that had a picture of Bobby Rush back in his Black Panther days, and then Bobby Rush. Uh, w- as an alderman or as a congressman, and and he, the slogan was "with you now, with you then, with you now." And I thought that was a a telling thing because he kept, as Lynn said, his roots uh, in Chicago and in, on the pulse of a very important voice uh, of Chicagoans. Who, who needed to be heard and needed to express a lot of the issues that don't always get the headlines. Right. And I've been looking for that picture on that billboard picture. I think it ran with some of my stories and I'm glad you brought it up because that, that is kind of him in a snapshot too of, yeah, uh, of his arc. Yeah. On it. And I guess we should also remember he was, uh, in the Chicago City Council for 10 years, between 1983 right. and 1993, he was first elected to Congress at, in the 1992 election, where he toppled Democratic incumbent Charlie Hayes. So he, uh, he you know, it's like with many political figures, his first run for elected office wasn't successful. He, he ran for alderman in 1975, and he just went, came back, you know, in 1983 and, and finally got his uh, first elected post and he's been reelected afterwards. And the other thing that he of course is known for is that uh, he defeated then state Senator Barack Obama in $2,000 and a $2,000 in the year 2000 uh, where uh, he, Obama was making a run for his house seat. Now, Rush joked at his press conference a few days ago that he wonders who really won since Obama, with that loss, went on to uh, become president and is a very rich man now. Another little footnote, let's remember in that 2000 election, uh, Bobby Rush was also helped over the finish line because Bill Clinton endorsed him. Yeah, you know, I mean, I remember if you want to kind of put it on a time in history, when he was running for Congress, it was back when the first Iraq war broke out. And we're, and I can remember talking to him then because he was a candidate for Congress and getting his thoughts about it and uh, his concerns about it then. But that kind of helps you visualize the timeline of how long he's been uh, with us, like he said, with you then with us now. Yeah, I suspect that uh, Bobby Rushing moving on is, is the end of an era in more than one way. Um, uh, Illinois and Chicago used to be known for, for once you elected a congressman, you were there forever. Um, yeah. That is little by little seems to be breaking down. Um, uh, 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 his uh, Russia's uh, colleague from uh, from the West Side, Danny Davis, has been there almost as long as as he has. Um, but uh, but politics is more volatile now. Uh, people are, have less patience, um, and I think that I think that the days when somebody was elected, you could pretty much you know stay until they carried him out. Those, those are little by little, that's ending here. 
And I guess the name that's uh, on everybody's tip of the tongue now is older woman Pat Dow came out uh, saying she wanted to run to uh, fill his seat. Are we hearing any other names out there, Greg? Uh, you're hearing anything? Oh, there's, oh, there's a t- there's a there's a ton of names. There's a, there's there's three or four legislators. Um, uh, I know that. Uh, that uh, Christian uh, Christian Mitchell, uh, former state legislator who's now deputy governor, has taken a good look at it. Um, I hear talks about a woman who heads up the Cook County Workforce Board. Um, I, this has the potential to be a pretty crowded race. Um, what's interesting is, and what makes it easy for for, for Dowell, is it, it's pretty clear that uh, that June Lewis has the inside track in the Secretary of State's office. It's not over until it's over, but uh, Dowell's chances of breaking through there were pretty slim. Um, uh, so here's another opportunity for a, for a seat uh, that uh, allows her to run without giving up her her, uh, her city council seat um, because she can then run if she doesn't win for this she can still run for that. In the cases of the legislators, uh, they're in a more difficult spot because every single seat in the general assembly, House and Senate, is up this time. So if you run for Congress, you, you in effect have to give up the job you have now. That makes it a lot easier for Dow. And I think that eliminates some of her uh, competition, potential competition anyway, because of just the reason you outlined. Nobody wants to be out of office if they don't win Congress or the legislative seat they now have. Would she be the front leader then? Well, I think she is right now because she is off and running. She she was easily able to convert in an instant uh, her political campaign organization for secretary of state to a house race she's got a website she's already had multiple email appeals even though it takes a little bit of work and phone calling you could convert some of your uh, state donors to federal donors you just cannot make a wholesale transfer of the money but she has five hundred thousand dollars cash on hand as that's what her state race balance will show again you cannot wholesale transfer it, but she has an active base of donors. Also, she can legitimately use some of that money just for generic party building, voter registration uh, stuff, or to amplify her work as an alderman. Uh, so she has a running start. I also would throw in there uh, former city treasurer Kurt Summers, uh, who may go there but i also and i and i think you know bobby rush is going to make an endorsement on sunday i wouldn't be surprised if it's the uh newcomer candidate or some, i think she once ran for alderman once before karen uh, norton reeves northington reeves, excuse me norrington reeves uh so the more people in means the less amount of votes you need to win the primary since it only takes a plurality to get the nomination. Somebody else that's been in the news, and you had a great story, uh, Lynn, uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger basically closing the door on any kind of statewide run. He wants to say, saying that he wants to focus on fighting insurrection. Um, is, is he looking for a group to join? Is he going to do his own thing? What do we know his next steps are, Lynn? Well, this was not surprised. He's telegraphed this uh, for quite a while, but he he formalized it a few days ago that he is going to work full time. He he created a group uh, shortly after at the end of January of last year. He used his uh, one of his political action committees to uh, give him a launch of what he called his country first movement. 
So he is going to, he is wanting to get the Republican Party back in the hand of multiple Republicans, not just being run by Donald Trump. He still has his work on the January 6th committee. Uh, He would have been on the floor of the House on January 6th to mark the one-year anniversary, but he's on baby watch because he's expecting the birth of his son any moment. Maybe by the time we all hear this, it, it could happen. So he has a national platform. He was asked, I think, a while back, do you want to run for president? You know, it's not closing any doors. I'm not predicting that. But he he would have been on a much smaller platform if he had decided to run statewide. Governor is never an option. Who knows if he even could have won a primary. Uh, so he will remain on this national uh, crusade he has to fight against election denial, conspiracy theories, and uh, Donald uh, Trump's hold on the Republican Party. He's really set himself up to be a guy who could benefit if the pendulum uh, that is gripping Republicans swings back from this uh, maniacal uh, devotion to Trump back to uh, the regular type of Republican establishment that uh, really does care about truth and not just some uh, uh, figure who is trying to lead them now through uh, thick or thin. And so he could, uh, he's well placed to be a rising star if uh, and when we can, uh, a lot of Republicans hope when uh, the Republicans will move back to more of the party that they were rather than this singular figure follower that they've become. Hey, you're right, Ray. But uh, uh, that's a, that's a that's a pretty big if. Um, uh, you're talking about a party now where uh, where what, what close to a majority thinks that uh, the election was stolen from Mr. Trump, according to the polls. Um, uh, but, but Kissinger is young. He's a, a very attractive political figure. Uh, you know, he's got that fighter jock persona that uh, that comes across pretty well. Uh, big clean jaw, um, but. For him to have a future, he's going to have to really change the party. And if he really changes the party, uh, uh, I don't see him necessarily running for legislative office. I think maybe like another former Republican congressman, uh, uh, John Anderson, of a generation ago, uh, his role is going to be more national than here in Illinois. Well, now, speaking of Trump, he's come out and endorsed Mary Miller. I don't know if that helps her or hurts her in that race. That probably, you know, it's a good question. It certainly throws down the gauntlet. Um, uh, she's running in the same district now as uh, as another uh, uh, Republican incumbent, Rodney Davis. Uh, Rodney Davis is a conservative. He's a much more establishment, mainstream kind of Republican. And I think this sets up a pretty good case, pretty good test, in a wholly downstate area, which is certainly more conservative than the Chicago metropolitan area, uh, between an establishment Republican and a true Trump loyalist. Um, uh, uh, Davis has kind of gone back and forth. He's tried to he's tried to send some messages to the Trump people that he's kind of with them, but he's not entirely with them. Um, for instance, he voted against the infrastructure bill uh, that uh, got all kinds of Republican support in the Senate. Uh, I think that was an obvious appeal. But, you, you know, this this 
we, we were talking about how Kisner's going to be active in this fight for uh, the future of the Republican Party. Well, this is a good test uh, of to, as to the current state of the Republican Party in Illinois. Uh, do, do they want a, a Trump loyalist and somebody who's really uh, uh, going to amp up the rhetoric? Or are they looking for somebody who is more of a conventional figure who, in, in, in Davis's case, uh, potentially is going to be head of the committee that's going to be in charge of, of distributing all the infrastructure money, the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee? We'll see. Big fight. So your question is, does it mean anything, that Trump endorsement? It means everything, everything in Mary Miller's race for a second term. That Trump decided to get involved when you had uh, two people. Okay, so I, their votes are basically the same. They're pro-life, pro-gun rights uh, conservatives. Mary Miller has chosen to align herself with the Freedom Caucus uh, part of the wing of the Republican members of the House, whose public face is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, this is appealing. So with Trump getting involved, what he's trying to do in my analysis is get more of his MAGA members, Make America Great Again members in, who would be willing to, looking ahead to 2024, vote against certifying an election result that Trump is not happy with. Now, if Rodney Davis is reelected and if Republicans take control of the House, he is positioned to be uh, the chairman of the House Administration Committee. He is an institutionalist. He will vote he, uh, to ratify uh, electors that were sent to the House and Senate. Mary, if you have Mary Miller in, you have more of the MAGA Republicans who, you know, this is what's happening now and locally from locally by Trump backers planting seeds from school boards on up. That's why I think we should watch very closely what goes on in this election, because Rodney Davis is not running away from Trump. He told me when on our on the show I do, political show I do for the Sun-Times a few weeks ago, he wants his endorsement. But Trump demands not just 98 percent, a hundred plus percent. Just think one of the briefs Mary Miller has against Rodney Davis is that he's not calling to throw Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney out of the Republican House membership group. Like that's how high the bar of loyalty is that is being demanded. So this race might be a microcosm of the local and national Trump forces at work. Yeah, I, I tend to agree because uh, it's a, more or less a central to Southern Illinois district. And um, the attitudes in those areas will really reflect where nationally things are going because uh, the deeper south in Illinois you go, the more Trumpism you see. And uh, Davis has become established. He uh, won his last race over a pretty popular Democrat um, with a a sizable margin, a comfortable margin, probably be the better way to say it. But um, but uh, he will be showing himself as like a more he will try to come off, at least in the primary, as a more centrist Republican uh, with a sensible Republican taste, but still somebody who can recognize the needs of the Trumpers. But he will also have in his back pocket things like Mary 
Miller's call early on in her career where she uh, said, this is the battle. Hitler was right on one thing. He said, whoever has the youth has our future and our children are being propagandized. And she eventually uh, ended up apologizing for those types of remarks. But um, that is something that I could see on some of uh, Rodney Davis's uh, TV ads when he runs full out against her. Yeah, I can too. But uh, you know, so I think Ray, whether we like it or not, that really appeals to a big part of the Republican base right now. Um, I mean, Trump is uh, is we've all tried to figure out. We're still trying to figure out why Trump has been as successful as he is. And I think part of it is is the persona that I'm a fighter. I'm not going to take any guff from anybody else, and I'm going to say the stuff that needs to be said. And if it means breaking some China, I'm going to break it because I'm all for America. Uh, you know, she can almost turn that into a positive. I think. Yeah, it, uh, although I think that there is more of a Republican establishment area in uh, the in that district that is clearly bleeding toward uh, Trumpism. But I I uh, think with uh, Davis right now, with Davis uh, and his popularity overall in holding that district, uh, will give him an edge going into the primary. Well, we're going to find out. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, folks. Uh, my thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief of the Chicago Sun-Times, Greg Hines with Craig's Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, Tim Gordon. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. It's still four years away, but the Illinois History Museum is preparing for the 100th anniversary of Route 66. Joining me today is Erica Holtz, curator of the History Museum. Erica, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, we're glad you're here. So as you prepare for this exhibit honoring Route 66 on this important birthday, um, I guess you're looking for the public's help to help build the exhibit, and you're looking for artifacts. Is that right? We absolutely are. We're starting a collecting initiative where we're um, asking people to um, think about us. If they have Route 66 material, they would like to donate. So we are especially interested in vintage items that came from 66 during its heyday, and that's broadly defined, you know, it might be menus from restaurants or, you know, kitsch or whatever, um, anything that kind of symbolizes that um, mother road. And so what do you consider what years were considered the heyday? Um, they uh, it opened in 1926, hence the uh, exhibit's going to be a centennial anniversary in um, 2026, and it kind of fell out of use by about the 1970s. Okay, so we're talking a pretty long time span. <laughs> we are, yes. Okay, so um, if people have items they want to, you know, I guess either donate or put on loan, how do they get them to you, and do they get them back at the end of this exhibit? You know, that depends. The first thing to do would be to reach out to me. 
Um, email is usually best, and my email is ericaholst at illinois.gov. Um, and so if you just want to tell me a brief description of what you have and um, send a photo is always great, um, and then we can talk from there. And, um, you know, if people just want a loan for an exhibition and don't feel comfortable donating, we completely respect that and can work with that. Um, if they'd like to make a donation, um, we are trying to build up our permanent collection of artifacts as well. Do you have anything on a wish list that you would love to have? Oh, you know, we are uh, we're really um, kind of starting with a seed donation from an amazing donation from Bob Waldmeyer. But beyond that, we are really open to anything. So, yeah, like I said, any any kind of, you know, souvenirs that were picked up along the highway or things from, you know, motels or um, things that um, highlight uh, black-owned businesses along Route 66, um, you know, kind of just whatever speaks to that time in American history. And you just mentioned Bob Wildmeyer. Um, I know his family gave you guys a really big donation to get this exhibit off the ground. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who he is and what kind of items he has? Well, Bob Waldmeyer, um, probably uh, most people know of him, even if they don't know that they know of him, because mm -hmm. he was the inspiration for the character Fillmore in the movie Cars. And Bob was just kind of this iconic figure of Route 66. And he was born right here in Springfield, Illinois. And um, as a young man, he just kind of felt the pull of the mother road and at one point bought an old VW bus and would drive along the highway and as an artist, he would stop in every town along the way and he would create postcards and this really detailed, wonderful art of the people that lived there. And he lived in the Arizona desert for a while. Um, and so even though he was out there sort of at the tail end and maybe even after Route 66's heyday, he's really this iconic figure that just um, symbolizes the freedom of the open road. So cool. Erica, thank you so much for your time. This is a really cool exhibit, and I can't wait to see it once it, once it all comes together. Thank you for your time. Appreciate sure. it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.